The History Channel original podcast. Everything can change in a moment. Theodore Roosevelt did everything he could to be ready for that moment. Here's a man who had everything, education, wealth, opportunities. But he felt all of that must be used to help the lives of the unfortunate. Fairness, justice, equity is what drove him. He was the first celebrity president. He grasped the power of the presidency with both hands. He had so much energy, he's always on his feet. He dragged America, kicking and screaming, into the 20th century. He was always moving forward to change things, to make his mark on the world. Theodore Roosevelt, our 26th president, was the youngest man ever elected to the office. This season, an heir to one of New York's richest families goes on to become, improbably, champion of the working man and protector of our wilderness. From the History Channel, this is Making Teddy. I'm your host, Andre DeShields. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Theodore Roosevelt grows up in a townhouse in Gramercy Park, one of New York City's wealthiest neighborhoods. His grandfather's family settled in New Amsterdam, the original name for New York City in the early part of the 17th century. By the mid-1800s, Cornelius Roosevelt owned vast tracts of land in the growing city. He founded a bank that would eventually become Chase Bank. Roosevelt's father, Theodore Sr., was a philanthropist who founded both the Museum of Modern Art and the American Museum of Natural History. Theodore Roosevelt Jr. is born in 1858, one of four children. Khalil Gibran Mohammed is professor of history at Harvard's Kennedy School. Teddy Roosevelt comes of age in one of the most tumultuous times in American history. There was no way to be part of the United States in the early 1860s without understanding the existential threat posed by the Civil War itself. Teddy is just six years old when President Abraham Lincoln is assassinated. Presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin describes the memorial procession in New York. After Abraham Lincoln's assassination in 1865, a train carried his body home to Springfield. The cortege stopped in major cities along the way. In New York, 100,000 people lined the streets. An enormous crowd at that time They were drawn together in disbelief that the leader who had carried them through the Civil War had been shot. They sang, they held hands, they wept. They carried signs. One placard said, mankind has lost a friend. Teddy watches from the high window of his grandfather Cornelius' Union Square mansion. Historian Clay Jenkinson describes a photograph taken on that day. It shows two children looking down on the crowds. If you look closely at the second floor of this 
mansion, you see two little faces peering above the windowsill. That was T.R. and his brother Elliot. T.R. was six, almost seven, and his brother was five. Here we have our future 26th president looking down at the casket of our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, the man that Theodore Roosevelt would revere the rest of his life. What an uncanny and symbolic moment. Theodore was a son of privilege. The Roosevelt family stood at the very top of New York society. His grandfather was one of the five wealthiest people in the city of New York. But Roosevelt learns that, along with privilege, comes his family's expectation of generosity to those less fortunate. Edward T. O'Donnell is Associate Professor of History at the College of the Holy Cross. Theodore's father believes very firmly that to be a real citizen, to be a man, to be a Christian meant that you could enjoy wealth and privilege, but you had to use your wealth and your talent to help the lives of the unfortunate. And he's going to instill that in young Theodore. He'll take Theodore with him to visit the orphan boys and the vulnerable and to see the underside of the city and really constantly instruct him that as you grow up, this is something you must carry on. And Roosevelt feels that expectation deeply. He often accompanies his father on his trips to the orphanages and charities he supported. His father was the hero that he really admired. He said his father was his best friend, his companion, the greatest man he ever knew. But his father worried about his beloved son. T.D., as he was called. T.D. is sickly. He's underweight. He's frail. He had terrible asthma and really seemed to be one of those children that was destined to not reach adulthood. And so as a consequence, he was kept at home. He was in many ways babied by the family in order to kind of protect him from the infirmities that he suffered from. T.R. was very aware of how sick he was. When he had those asthma attacks, he would feel like he was suffocating or drowning. And then he heard his parents say that they were worried that he might not live. Just imagine what that's like for a little kid to hear that he might die. Because T.R. couldn't go to school and couldn't do what other children do, couldn't play outside much, he became bookish. He began to read books about boys that go off into the frontier and do great things and kill a buffalo and, and save pioneer families. He actually put himself into the adventures of the people that he was reading about, the explorers and the deer slayers. Roosevelt's lifelong interest in zoology begins at age seven, when he sees a dead seal at a local market. He manages to bring the seal's head home with him, and he and his two cousins set up what they name the Roosevelt Museum of Natural History. He got into collecting birds and insects. His shelves in his room were so filled with dead objects that poor Elliot begged to have another room. He teaches himself some basic taxidermy, then fills his makeshift museum with animals that he kills or traps himself. He arranges them in displays. At age nine, young Roosevelt writes a paper entitled The Natural History of Insects. Historian H.W. Brands is professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Theodore Roosevelt didn't have a lot of friends when he was a kid because he was mostly housebound. And so his father was his confidant. He was his model. He was the one who urged Theodore Roosevelt to make himself strong. And so it really was this model that Theodore Roosevelt tried to live up to. Roosevelt Sr. thinks that building his son's physical strength will give him his best chance at a longer life. 
and his father goes to him and challenges him. This need to prove himself through sheer willpower is one of the principal motivating forces in the entire life of Theodore Roosevelt. He took up that challenge with every bone of his body. He just said, I'll make my body. And by God did he, he was in that gym that his father provided for him day after day. And it becomes the challenge for the rest of his life. It's a philosophy Roosevelt will later describe in a defining 1899 speech as the strenuous life, saying, A life of ignoble ease, a life of that peace which brings merely from lack either of desire or of power to strive after great things, is as little worthy of a nation as of an individual. Teddy's father also had the highest aspirations for Roosevelt's education, despite the fact that his health required him to be homeschooled through adolescence. Roosevelt entered Harvard because his family was well-connected. He wanted to be a big man on campus. He could box, he could wrestle, but he was not well-coordinated. He had terrible eyesight, but he was determined. When T.R. entered Harvard, he was not very cool. He had these side whiskers, these bright red cheeks, those metal-rimmed glasses, and he was pretty awkward. He had been homeschooled, so he wasn't used to being with other kids. And then in his room, he had the dead lizards and the dead snakes, and the smell of formaldehyde followed him everywhere he went. He doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke, he doesn't swear. He finds out that many of his fellow classmates are heading off to Boston's brothels and gambling dens, and he's really appalled at what he sees as this immoral lot. So he doesn't make many friends with that attitude. Historian Stacy A. Cordery says none of this stopped him from performing at the highest level academically during his time at Harvard. He was loud, he could be obnoxious, he was opinionated, but he was interested in excelling. He worked hard at every class, he got A's, and embraced political science and history. No matter how strange he might have seemed at the start, there was something about his warmth his curiosity, his irrepressible energy that just won people over, he became one of them, and he became quite popular at Harvard. He does particularly well in science and philosophy. He was already an accomplished, self-taught naturalist and a published ornithologist. He reads constantly. Later in life, though, he remarks that his education at Harvard disappointed him. The biographer Henry F. Pringle wrote that he had been depressed by the formalistic treatment of many subjects, by the rigidity, the attention to minutiae that were important in themselves, but which somehow were never linked up with the whole. Roosevelt throws himself into athletics, rowing crew and boxing. He joins the prestigious social club, the Porcellian. And he falls in love. While he was at Harvard, he saw across the crowded room Alice Hathaway Lee, this beautiful Boston debutante. And she made quite an impression on him because he came home and wrote in his diary, I'm going to marry that woman. No sooner does he meet Alice Lee than he launches a crusade to make this young woman his wife. But just when he finds love, tragedy strikes gets a telegram saying that his father is dying and he rushes home, but by the time he gets there, his father is already dead. He was only 46 years old. His father was suffering from stomach cancer. 
The family had kept the illness from Roosevelt, not wanting to worry him while he was off at college. Flags are at half-mast throughout the city. They talked about him as one of the greatest philanthropists that New York had ever known, and the rich and the poor followed him to the grave. It was a terrible, terrible time for him. He said that if he had too much time on his hands, he would literally go crazy. Roosevelt's only 19, and it's really the first body blow that life deals Theodore Roosevelt. And he does what's going to be characteristic in the other dark moments and big challenges in his life and engages in intense physical activity. For the first time, Roosevelt learns how much solace the wilderness can bring. In the months after his father's death, he went to Maine, where he'd be out in the woods. He'd be kept busy day after day. Two guides in Maine, Bill Sewell and Will Dow, take him under their wing. And the extraordinary thing is they know he's fragile, but he actually has an asthma attack while he's there with them, and it doesn't stop him one bit. Every night he's bunking with the woodsmen, and these are people who may not have been able to write their own name, but he loved listening to their stories. And Sewell said you could see that night that wherever he went, he got connected with the people. He enjoyed listening to them, empathizing with them, learning their stories, and make some sort of connection that will last for the rest of his life with many of these people. Roosevelt has a gift for getting along with people of every ilk. Jared Cohen is the author of Accidental Presidents. It's one of the things that's really remarkable about him. Despite being a wealthy gentleman from New York City, he can mix with anybody. He never tries to be someone that he's not. And his authenticity makes him quite relatable to people who he really has nothing in common with. He comes back to Harvard. He's stronger, more confident, even more passionate about Alice Lee. And they announce their engagement on St. Valentine's Day. They're married on Roosevelt's 22nd birthday. They go back to New York City. In December of 1880, after a European honeymoon, Teddy and Alice return home. He enrolls at Columbia Law School. Roosevelt writes of this time, I am living in a dream of delight with my darling, my true love. but he has not yet chosen a career. It is at this point that Roosevelt discovers that he must chart the true direction his life will take. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In 
Initially, Theodore was thinking that he would follow in his father's footsteps, that he would get involved in the philanthropic boards that his father had been so important in. He began to realize that if he got into government, that government could take care of some of the underlying problems that the philanthropic world had addressed. He decided my mission is going to be the betterment of New York City's government. Politics appeals to Roosevelt's competitive spirit, his sense of civic duty, his love of being center stage. This is an era when the contrast between the haves and the haves not in New York is at its most stark. Richard Sachs is the author of Island of Vice. At the time, the poverty and the wealth were so extreme in New York. It was a gilded age. The millionaires, the J.P. Morgan and Vanderbilt, the size of their mansions, just extraordinary in Fifth Avenue. And then you go down to the Lower East Side and see such just brutal poverty full of so many new immigrants. More than two-thirds of the city was either foreign-born or first-generation. Immigrants were taken advantage of because they didn't speak the language by capitalists who were looking to make a profit. And there was no safety net. There is no minimum wage. There is no social security. People starved to death in New York City. Roosevelt is impatient. He's intent on entering politics where he believes he can make a difference. But the political system plays by its own rules. In those days, to break into a party, you had to belong almost to a club. So you had to find where the headquarters were, and they were in a big room above a saloon, Morton Hall. So he just started going there and hoped that he would be accepted as part of the Republican Party. Theodore Roosevelt was attracted to the Republican Party because it was his father's party, and it was the party of Abraham Lincoln. He doesn't quite fit in anywhere, yet he can get along with anyone. His personable nature works just as well with party bosses as with fur trappers in Maine. And so, in 1881, he runs for office and wins. And just as he did at Harvard, Roosevelt stands out from the crowd. Theodore Roosevelt is elected to the New York State Assembly T.R. shows up in Albany as a 23-year-old freshman state assemblyman. Of course, he's got his own outfit, custom-tailored for the experience. Black and white photos of the state legislature might show a lot of people wearing jackets and ties, but it's a rough place, filled with rough, heavy-drinking, tough people. And along comes this silk-stocking elitist. He just seems ripe for a bully to come along and pick on him. And that's precisely what happens. And so Roosevelt realizes that he can't just simply be moral. He just can't simply be brilliant. He actually has to get in the ring. If the situation required it, he had to put up his dukes and fight. So Roosevelt does just that. He would later say, Don't hit at all if you can help it. Don't hit a man if you can possibly avoid it. But if you do hit him, put him to sleep. He regards politics as a fight between good and evil. So he gets on the floor and he yells at his Democratic opponents. He says, they're rotten, they're corrupt. And he makes lots of enemies doing this. After a while, the Republicans even begin to get irritated with him. He had risen like a rocket in New York. Of course, they loved those fiery speeches. But then he realized he was crashing like a rocket. And he finally realizes that he's alienated everybody and he can't get anything done. And the good thing was he understood that he had a swelled head. He tones down his rhetoric. He reaches across the aisle to the Democrats. 
He makes friends again with his fellow Republicans, and he really becomes an effective legislator. He learns how to play by the rules and to work with his colleagues in the State House, but he remains an independent thinker. When he was new to the New York legislature, it was assumed that he would vote as his social class voted in all bills, and these bills would favor the wealthy. There was a cigar reform bill that was going to prohibit the manufacture of cigars in private houses, in tenement houses. Cigars at that time were made in people's homes. Horrible, squalid, small, dark, awful places where usually immigrants labored almost around the clock. If cigars were made at home, then the cigar companies made a lot of money. When the cigar bill first comes to the floor, he gives a passionate speech against it. All of his life's learning had taught him that the government had no right to interfere with the rights of private property. In fact, he had voted against minimum wage bills, working condition changes on that very philosophical understanding. And Roosevelt assumed that the home manufacturer of cigars was just fine. When Samuel Gompers, who went on to become an extremely important labor leader, said, look, come with me on a little inspection tour. Roosevelt didn't say no, or I'll send an aide, or give me a report. He said, of course. Roosevelt decides to go see firsthand what the working conditions are like. He takes up Gompers' challenge, but also it's his native curiosity, the same curiosity that made him want to understand what it was like for the woodsmen to live in the woods all their lives. Now he wants to see what is life like for these people living in the tenement, and what he sees stuns him. The visit makes an enormous impression on him. Though Roosevelt grew up in this very city, he is shocked at what he sees. They lived under conditions where plaster was falling off the walls. The ceilings were a constant wet puddle. There was mold and brownness and dirt smudged in every corner of the room. They might live in windowless, confined dwellings with tuberculosis and other contagious diseases. They're absolutely desperate and they'll do whatever it takes to put a tin of food on the table for their children. They can't protect their own value as laborers. And Roosevelt underwent a kind of conversion experience over this. He gained, I think, a sense that he was on the side of the underdog. And that firsthand experience is the thing he will crave the rest of his life, to see conditions the way they really are, to feel empathy and understand how other people are living. And then he's able to say, I'm going to make this difference. This is the first inkling that he gets, that his father's style of public duty is not enough. The only way this problem is going to be fixed is not through philanthropy. The problem of exploited workers is going to be fixed by law. When he returns to Albany, he surprises everyone by siding with the rights of workers over the interests of business. Edward Kahn is a professor of history at Norwich University. Roosevelt came out in favor of the cigar reform bill, and he went to the Democratic governor at the time, Grover Cleveland, who's skeptical of the bill, to lobby for this with the governor. The bill passes. Roosevelt was so excited, knowing that it would change the conditions of life for the people who were in those tenement houses. This is just the first example, really, of Roosevelt betraying his class, of Roosevelt looking out for the poor. And then, in short order, the bill got overturned by the courts. He thought, well, what does it mean when you finally get a legislative body to do the right thing, only to have it vetoed by unelected court justices? Roosevelt would later say, 
It was this case which first waked me to the fact that the courts were not necessarily the best judges of what should be done to better social and industrial conditions. They knew nothing whatever of tenement house conditions. They knew nothing whatever of the needs of the life and labor of three-fourths of their fellow citizens in great cities. This is the moment when Roosevelt realizes that the system as it exists is not capable of real reform. He was shocked at what he saw in Albany. The graft, the corruption, these people who are getting the bribes, insisting on the bribes, paying off judges. So he decides on a different approach, to change the system. He starts investigating corruption. Newspapers couldn't get enough of it. Even from his first days in the assembly, he understood the power of the press, and he made friends with the people who were covering the assembly. Roosevelt becomes a very savvy politico about how to get things done, who to align with, and how to get the public on your side. Increasingly, people are making decisions about politicians based on what they would read in the newspapers. By the time he's reached that second term in his legislature, he's championing a series of reform bills, and he really feels like he's become a leader and he has the reins in his hand. His political career is on the rise, and he has just become a father. Tweed Roosevelt is Theodore Roosevelt's great-grandson. Back in New York City at the time, his new wife, Alice, was pregnant. They were about to have their first child when he received a telegram telling him that his wife had produced a baby girl. It's a moment of great celebration. Cigars and congratulations all around. And then a second telegram arrives. You must come home at once. Your wife is dying, and your mother is dying too. It was incomprehensible. His mother had contracted typhoid fever just in the week that she came there to help take care of Alice, who was dying from complications of childbirth. So he got on the train and inched his way down to the city. It was the longest train journey of his life. By the time he got to New York, it was in the middle of the night. His brother Elliot meets him at the door and says to him, there's a curse on this household. It's Valentine's Day, 1884. Theodore Roosevelt sits by his mother's bed as she dies from typhoid fever. Just a few hours later, he holds his young wife Alice in his arms as she too dies from Bright's disease. The two most important women of his life have died in the same house on the same day within hours of each other. In his diary, Roosevelt writes a large X on the page, followed by the words, The light has gone out of my life. After the funeral, he writes, For joy or for sorrow, my life has now been lived out. In a single day, he has lost almost everything. He thought that his life was effectively over. He went to the Little Missouri River Valley in Dakota Territory, the Badlands, the starkness and the ruggedness, the drama of it, 
had a deep appeal to him. He really believed that there was nothing further for him in New York City. And so he went there thinking that he might never return. The wide open West just captured his spirit. He had come to believe that the frontier was the test of the American character. The Badlands was no place for a gentleman from New York. This was a rough, rough place. That's next time on Making Teddy. Making Teddy is a podcast from the History Channel, produced by Best Case Studios. For the History Channel, Jesse Katz, Eli Lara, Mary Donahue, and Jennifer Wagman are the executive producers. McKamey Lynn, supervising producer. Ben Dickstein, the senior producer. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. Suzanne Myers is our producer. Hannah Leibowitz-Lockard is the associate producer. Max Michael Miller edited and mixed this episode. The television series, Theodore Roosevelt, was originally produced by Radical Media for the History Channel. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.